Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host for this very special episode, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, my co-director of outreach and the OIC of the Hampton Roads debt. What's happening down there in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Suffolk, Chesapeake area? The whole area. A lot of good stuff. So it's definitely cooling down. So that's a welcome uh, relief from the heat we've had this summer. Um, the fleet down here definitely is still managing through COVID. They just, uh, they roll back a little bit on HIPCON. They're in Bravo now. So that gives a little more latitude and coming and going to manage. Um, and then I've been just doing my outreach, uh, you know, a lot more digitally, right. And as you know, just created that, uh, to the deck plates newsletter as a way to reach and, uh, tailor that towards enlisted audience and capture what's going on in the forum with enlisted naval professionals, across the sea services. So it highlights who's being published, what's being written about, um, and, and what's being accomplished by enlisted naval professionals in the forum. So that's exciting. Um, you know, just some stats. We're up to 27 articles published this year in proceedings by enlisted authors, either proceedings or the blog. So that's cool. The podcast continues to grow. So this episode is our 26th episode with an enlisted guest and then the 15th this year. So that's exciting. And, and then I think every time we talk, I'm still working on the Petty Officer's Guide, but I am bringing that home. Uh, I just want to make sure we get that right. And it takes a lot of time to make sure you've got it right uh, and you're addressing the needs of that audience. Yeah, Roger that. Well, some fantastic stats, growth in the right direction. We'll keep that going. We have talked to Mick Pond a couple of times on the show, uh, and now we have the Marine Corps equivalent, and we're very pleased to have the guest for this episode. Absolutely. So, Ward, uh, this morning, it's my pleasure to... Welcome Sergeant Major Troy Black to the Proceedings Podcast. Sergeant Major Black assumed his position as the 19th Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps in July of 2019. Uh, he's a native of Louisville, Kentucky, and attended uh, recruit training at Paris Island back in 1988. Throughout his career, Sergeant Major Black's been assigned as a machine gunner, a machine gun squad and section leader, weapons platoon sergeant, and weapons platoon commander, senior drill instructor, fleet anti-terrorism security team, platoon sergeant, and operations chief, series gunny sergeant, first sergeant, and several sergeant major positions. He's got several combat, non-combat deployments under his belt, including Operation Sea Soldier, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Sea Angel, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, and Operation Inherent Resolve. So basically, he's been there if it's in the Middle East this whole you know past 25 plus years. So Sergeant Major Black, Welcome to the uh, Proceedings Podcast. Thanks again for taking time to join us. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, great opportunity to be able to kind of engage uh, on the in this forum. Just kind of give a little update of where the Marine Corps, you know, has been, where we are, and where we're going in the future. So uh, look forward to, to the conversation, gentlemen. Thank you. Let's start out with kind of current events. So how are you and the Marine Corps and your Marines doing in this COVID environment these days? I think if I, if I said there hadn't been some impacts to COVID, uh, I probably wouldn't be telling the truth. So I think that's a good place to start. You know, obviously COVID and the pandemic uh, has been challenging. Uh, I would say initially uh, those challenges were greater than they are now because like everyone kind of starting out in an unknown environment, um, you make some immediate changes to things. And then you figure out how to kind of to mitigate and, and get back to normal operations. Here's what I would offer. Ultimately, over the course of this COVID environment, the Marine Corps continues to train, man, equip, 
in order to conduct our deployments for deployed of which, uh, which is open source. About 35,000 Marines continue to be forward deployed in areas across the globe. And we've probably moved in and out about half of them over the course of the last six months or so I've been in the COVID environment. So working through COVID uh, restrictions, working through social distancing, working through some of the mitigation factors for testing and these sort of things. We're, of course, back up on plane, fully fulfilling our mission. So you've been in the seat now a little over a year. Um, so that's exciting. You know, obviously, with any new role or position, no matter how experienced we are, there's some growth into that. And there's some differences. So what's been the biggest eye opener for your tour so far? Um, what's been the most rewarding part, I guess? And also what's been the most frustrating? I'd say the biggest eye opener, quite frankly, is I, I visited the Pentagon probably twice before I got this job and actually had to work in an office where I had actually parked. So my biggest eye opener is I've got my own parking place right next to one of the doors to get in here. Uh, no joke intended there. That, that's the truth. Yeah, and that's a big deal up there. It is. Um, quite frankly, eye opener or eye popper across the Marine Corps, absolutely none. Other than the fact that I continue to be impressed every single day with the hard work and dedication the Marines and their leaders are putting into preparing for what the Marine Corps does best. We train to fight to win. It's really easy being a Marine. Uh, if you focus on those three things, training to fight and win, usually you're in a good organization. Usually you have a good unit. Usually you have good leadership. Usually the training is outstanding. Usually the results of the training uh, just don't improve your ability to, to do those things. And that's been more refreshing and reassuring than anything else. And that's been especially reassuring Again, for the last six months, about half of this first year has been in sort of a COVID-restricted environment. Marines continue to do what everybody expects Marines to do, what our nation expects Marines to do, train, to fight, and win. So just reassurance is probably the best thing I've gotten over the last year observing uh, Marines across the globe. Frustrations, probably just the communication challenges with COVID. And do you get out and about like you normally would? Obviously, you're not engaging. So how do you get that pulse or how do you engage them with force uh, in a COVID environment? I've had the opportunity to travel with the Commandant. Now we, by all the COVID restrictions, maintain a pretty pretty tight tight bubble for, I think everybody by this time knows what that means, clean bubble. Uh, we've been able to travel specifically uh, out to the West Coast. We've been down to, uh, to Camp Pendleton, or out to Camp Pendleton. We've been down to Camp Lejeune. What we've not been able to do is get out into the Pacific, obviously. Uh, we've not been able to get into to Europe where there's other Marines that are stationed. Right before we had uh, the COVID had hit, we had been uh, to all those places, save Europe. So we already had gotten around the Marine Corps within that first six months and got a good sense of what was going on. And we were about to get into sort of uh, a second run at most of those areas. I was able to travel extensively uh, separate from the Commandant as well and be able to really get down, uh, lack of a better term, kneecap to kneecap in a lot of our schools and organizations and talk to Marines, kind of get a sense for, for what's going on across the Marine Corps. Now, having said that, obviously, that's been very restrictive since we've been in COVID because most of the travel that I do and my team does is, is through commercial and not not on military, you know, clean bubble sort of flights. So it's been very restrictive in that sense. So as you were initially getting around, what was kind of the first set of message to uh, your Marines and what was what was the key areas of feedback you were getting and that was on their minds? Well, you know, the Commandant, when he got in place, he issued his Commandant's planning guidance the day after, you know, he took over his assumption of, of responsibility of the commandancy. You can imagine that generated a great deal of conversation uh, and, and frankly, all good conversation. I think it's important to note that 
conversation can be uh, adversarial, but it doesn't have to be negative. Everybody's, everybody understands where the commandant's taking the Marine Corps and force design. So those initial conversations across the force and continue in many ways, be focused on where is the Marine Corps now, where has the Marine Corps been, and where and why is the Marine Corps moving uh, the way that, that we are for the future. I think we're probably getting into some of that discussion there with some follow-on questions, but what I will say is, is save the three of us on this screen. If we, if, we, if we used ourselves as an example across probably the majority of any of the services right now, the three of us remember a time when we had a peer competitor on the globe. Yeah. Uh, and if you're like me, that was like when I was like a young corporal, an E4, and then that kind of went away. So the subsequent 28 plus years of my career, we have not had a peer competitor. Most of us, even on in this conversation, that, that they're of, of, of uh, elder statesmanship right now, have a not so fond memory because it's been so long ago. So as we see how the commandant and really all the services are now starting to align according to the national defense strategy towards a peer threat, there's a lot of change that all the services are going through right now to be able to not only raise our game, but get back to thinking about, okay, we have a peer. It's a lot different than what we've been fighting, who, we, who we've been fighting and engaging with throughout the 1990s. And really, at the, the level of warfare that we that we executed throughout the 2000s up to where we're at today uh, across the globe, preparing and setting, setting ourselves up to be able to compete with the peer. So, uh, Sergeant Major, what Fleet said at the outset when he was reading your bio really does reinforce your own personal experience with what you just said. You know, you, you've, you've primarily fought asymmetric threats, uh, except maybe the uh, Iraqi army during Desert Storm, you could say was a conventional threat. They had tanks, they had airplanes. But certainly what you did, OIF, OEF, was against a, a, an insurgency, uh, an asymmetric threat. And so the Corps, actually the Army, uh, also grew against that threat in ways where we were, you know, more MRAPs, more body armor. And now, as you've mentioned, it probably started with General Neller, but uh, certainly General Berger has seriously made this his root note is let's pivot back to traditional missions, looking at from the sea, looking at amphibious warfare. And as you said, the rise of China, particularly, is this return to pure conflict. So how are you seeing this play out on the on the deck plates in places like Pendleton and so forth? Is the training changing? Um, what are you saying attitudinally to folks? And, you know, by this time, folks that are sergeants and above are in the middle of this pivot. Right. And, and so how are you sort of urging them to rethink their role? So great question. And quite frankly, you know, just looking at when, when I came into the Marine Corps, 1988, what's so what's so big about that? What I'll tell you is, is that the commandant at the time was was General Al Gray. And he he came into his commandancy kind of in the same position that, that General Berger has. Let's focus on what we know to be an enemy in the future. I, I don't know that General Gray, Gray was clairvoyant and could have ever predicted the fall of the Soviet Union the way that it went down. But it was probably safe to say after our experience, remember, Vietnam, we could we could argue was a counterinsurgency or what or it was not, but we were we 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 were able to compete in a counterinsurgency environment in Vietnam, having a force developed, man trained and equipped to fight a peer threat. I think that's important to note. But General Gray and I'm going to assume the rest of the the service senior uh, uh, commanders at the time could also see 
okay, we're going to go through a transition. And we did, the fall of the Soviet Union. So what did we spend our time doing in the 1990s? We started to develop doctrinal concepts for the joint force, military operations other than war. Interesting. Not something we had talked about before. Low-intensity conflict. Uh, things we had not talked about before. We were still in a very high-end conventional start, start at the bottom, end up with nuclear uh, you know, warfare is, is the ultimate end state to what a conflict would look like with a peer threat. So I don't think it's much different now than it was then. I think what the commandant, what our NDS described is, okay, we've got to do those things. Absolutely true. We're still able to compete in an environment that's low-intensity conflict, which I think is persistent. I think all of us understand that military operations other than war, the concept that we may change what that sounds like and looks like, that didn't really, actually it did discuss VEOs at the time, just in different terminology. But the fact of the matter is that set us up to be highly successful in a very large counterinsurgency operation in Iraq and Afghanistan with some conventional warfare mixed in with it. Those core competencies don't, don't leave who we are as an institution, a Marine Corps. But now we're looking forward. We've got to maintain those competencies, which I think that we, we, we will do a fine job of. We've got to be able to compete in an environment that we have not experienced in a long time against a peer threat who is who is capable and is increasing their capabilities to compete with us at the high end of warfare. That's different than squads, teams and platoons, which is really primarily the fight in Afghanistan. And we transition to that sort of level of fight in Iraq. Now we're talking about being able to operate at the high end. We're talking about large one large scale formations eventually, but it starts out in low scale distributed operations. Now, I think if you look at the commandant's planning guidance, you'll see our focus is on being able to have highly enabled, highly capable, heavy capability to sense and place the enemy in a dilemma by having highly educated, highly trained, foundationally warfighting trained Marines to engage at a moment's notice, not a buildup to the threat. We won't have the ability to stage and set the theater to the commandant's point. We have to be in place, ready to engage immediately against a comp competing threat that is also desires to engage us in the same fashion. Pretty complex answer to your question about where I think we're at. But the fact of the matter is being able to see into the future and develop a force to be able to operate in that, in that environment, no different than when I came in, reversing that, going from a conventional force into a low-intensity conflict counterinsurgency sort of force that helped us be able to fight and be successful in Iraq and Afghanistan. No, that's a great answer. Uh, so in terms of op tempo and, and what your average, let's say, infantry Marine w will do, uh, let's just, I'm going to be very general here, but in the previous 15 to 20 years, you may not even see an amphib, right? You could arrive right at Camp Leatherneck um, or one of the other installations, Rhino, um, and, and just sort of hang out there like an expeditionary force. And now are we seeing more and more floats like the old days aboard, you know, the Mu construct? I know that's under study as well, but will your average Marine plan on being on an amphib to a greater degree than maybe his predecessors were in the previous 15 to 20 years? We ask that question in two ways. There's always been the requirement for the Marine Corps to come from the sea. Um, and we've trained. In fact, during during our OIF, OE, OEF years, uh, I was on two two MUs. One that actually went into to Iraq. The other one, in 2014, we did operations during OIR. So the concept that the Marine Corps does not operate train from the sea is 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 probably one that's been lost to 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 more required 
engagements on land. The thought that the Marine Corps is a second land army, I will debate all day long because the way the Marine Corps fights as, as compared to the Army is a little bit different. Success achieved both in both services, but the fact of the matter is the nation needed to have troops on the ground and therefore called upon the Marine Corps to, to be troops on the ground, boots on the ground. So we did that, did successfully. However, there's always been a need and necessity for Marines to be able to maintain their operational concepts, their doctrine to operate from the sea. I think if you look at a map, it's very clear why that the Marine Corps, in conjunction with the, with the Navy, developing a naval expeditionary force strategically, if we look at China as our competitor, the terrain has not changed. And we're very familiar with that terrain. If you want to put our, an adversary into a compromise, you probably need to be in the place that puts them and makes them most comfortable. For us, now this is open source, first island chain inside the weapons engagement zone, being able to compete in that environment, in that very close space, that's the terrain and territory and the abilities of the combined Navy and Marine Corps team. That is our backyard. Marines have and always will maintain, even through OF, OEF years, we still train as an amphibious fighting force. Never change that. Expeditionary fighting force. Never change that. In fact, I would argue, other than coming from a ship to the shore, we still maintain expeditionary fighting capabilities. A reminder, we got into Afghanistan through a MEB, which was two MUs put together, led by our former secretary, uh, General Mattis. So from the sea is how the Marine Corps operates and will continue to operate. And as you mentioned several times now, the Commandant is driving a lot of change. I was just reading Chinfo clips yesterday and this morning. There's always something in there about, you know, force structure changes, restructure, better integration with the Navy, uh, new vehicles, new tactics, new weapons. So from your perspective, um, you know, what do you like? What kind of do you think is cool, a technology that's going to be, you know, revolutionary per se? Um, what do the Marines like and what kind of things kind of raise your eyebrow a bit in suspicion? Let me start with suspicion first. And suspicion is, is going to not be necessarily probably the, some of the answer you're looking for. I think there's a false suspicion that young Americans who decide to join the military right now, that there's, there's, a, there's a challenge getting, you know, enough high quality individuals that can do and operate at this high end of warfare. I, I will debate that until the end of time, because I'm relatively certain all old folks, as they get towards the end of their military career, are convinced that the new generation doesn't have what it takes. Master Chief, you and I both know, we came in the Navy and the Marine Corps, right? The outgoing senior leadership, you know, focus on us as being like, uh, you know, the Pepsi generation or something. We, we didn't have what it takes, right? You know, we played these crazy yeah. video games like Atari. Yeah. Uh, computers and email are going to kill communication and leadership. Uh, what are you guys talking about? You know, you, you listen to, to 80s music and, and it's not good music. So I think when we look from that perspective, here's what I would offer. I think that's a fallacy. And I think anybody that challenges our, our current generation of young Americans that want to and are going to enter service as being incapable, I find that to be a fallacy. Here's why I say that. We are now operating in an environment. Let's call it the digital age. Let's call it the cyber realm. That our children, yours and my children, are not native. They are not uh, migrants to. They are natives to. When you and I or any of us sit down talking about how we're going to operate in a digital environment, how they enabled with all national assets down to the tactical level and be able to operate in this multi-domain, highly digital 
very, very complex environment that a younger generation who comes from a society that's that's sent into these things. We, we forget for a minute that my 16 year old daughter holds a cell phone in her hand. She's now going to school on a computer in a completely virtual environment. And she multitasks while making a snack, practicing her, her juggles for soccer with a phone in her hand and engages in this environment already. And that's the future fighting environment. That's the future environment of warfare. I think we forget that sometimes. What excites me? What excites me is, is this, this, this population of young Americans coming in right now know more about the future operating environment than those that are designing how we're going to get there. Back to the previous question, what excites me or how do I see transition? I would argue that we were the ones who were able to carry the vision, right, throughout the 1990s into how we actually ended up operating in, in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, global war on terrorism. We're the ones that carried that into being. The vision was someone else. So I think as we see this environment, all domains sort of sort of become more mature. What we're going to find ourselves is in a position where we're just as good as we always have been with the new new folks that are coming in to fill the ranks. And I'm sure as well that 20 and 30 years from now, they're going to be filtering out going, oh, my gosh, we're going to fail misery because the people born in the early 2000s are not quite qualified. So just think about that for a moment. Yeah, I love that because um, I'm with you right across the enlisted force. It doesn't matter what branch of service. You know, I talk about that a lot and I did towards the end of my career is definitely more informed, educated, capable, and they want to make a difference, right? This isn't just a, you know, um, we didn't just go get them and force them in. They're here. They want to serve. They want to fight. And they are capable of that fight. And then another thing you said is post-Cold War era, but we saw what that Navy looked like, at least I did, right? With 15 aircraft carriers, over 100 submarines, and mm-hmm. that that sense of that peer competitor. And towards the end of my career, I found myself being one of those few guys, us being able to kind of translate that back and go, hey, this is going to look a little different, right? We're going to deploy, uh, get prepared for that. So helping usher in that next series of change, I think was important. Um, But I think that's great that you're talking about that capability of today's Marine. I think there's a mindset of what it is, and it's definitely not. We see that in proceedings with them writing and the things they tee up um, and your perspective. You know, if I went back, you know, 10 Sergeant Majors ago in the Marine Corps, um, that perspective wouldn't been, I don't think as refined and mature. So I think that's great. And you package that really well. So, um, let's shift a little bit. Um, let's talk about it. You probably haven't had the chance. I'm not sure, but one thing that the service senior enlisted can do that really no others do is testify in front of Congress and you get great access to political and policy leaders. Um, so what's been your experience with this area? Um, and are there key policy areas or resource shortfalls you find that you've been able to advocate for, for Marine quality of work or quality of life areas? So, um, I had the opportunity to, to go to testimony with the commandant, uh, at nearly every session that he had last year. It's, it's amazing. You asked the question because the day before, uh, master Chief and Navy and I were to testify, uh, Congress shut down because of COVID. I mean, literally the day before. So we, he and I together, in fact, uniquely, uh, he and I and both the service fours were going to testify all on the same panel. And we're specifically going to be in typical fashion, you know, quality of life issues for both the Navy and the Marine Corps. What I would tell you is, is having had the experience with the commandant, it was interesting to see how the Congress was in support of quality of life matters for the services at large. 
I sat, I sat behind the commandant and combined panel with all the service secretaries and all the service chiefs. And we were talking about PPV at the time, but it was a greater quality of life conversation. And it was amazing to me how much support the Congress had for taking care of, obviously I'll talk about Marines, but Marine sailors, service members, period. So I think there's support there. Challenges. The budget's the budget. Um, and what challenges the budget is, is CR. And, and, and I, I don't think any of us would ever, you know, having continuing re resolutions allows us not to be able to fully spend the money that we had planned to spend, number one, two, not be able to plan to spend money that we don't yet have to do the POM process. And the CR just challenges all of those things. That's a challenge. So we're talking about uh, engagement at the congressional level. If I had the opportunity to, to sit in front of Congress today, my first biggest ask was, do not place us into a CR. It does not allow us to continue to man, train, equip in order to push forward and operate and push back up against competitors, VOs, whoever the adversary is, because we cannot generate, right? We cannot generate consistency and force development in a CR. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge that you just can't plan for. Are they responsive to that or what's the comeback? They, they get that, right? Um, do, they, do they come back with any kind of response on that? I think a better question to ask is how do we get there? And, and that, those are areas that you and I both know we should never swim in. How, the yeah. fact of the matter is how we get to the CR might be the challenge. Uh, but once the decision made to go into CR, that, that quite frankly is how it impacts the, the department writ large. And you put your head on the pillow at night, just knowing you've represented that up and then let the decision makers take it from there. Absolutely. Um, how about other senior enlisted leaders? You mentioned Mick Pond. Um, what's your relationship with them been over the past year? Uh, we have a new senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. What's the relationship there, the, the drumbeat of communication? You know, one of the things we do is a senior enlisted advisor to the chairman, uh, Chief Master Sergeant Colon Lopez, um, has been able to, and I think probably carrying on from the previous uh, senior enlisted advisor, we do a monthly, quarterly, depends on all of our very busy schedules. We will, we will come and have a meeting with all the service senior enlisted. That includes the National Guard Bureau. That'll include the uh, Master Chief or the Coast Guard. Uh, it now includes the transitional or, or the Space Force uh, uh, senior enlisted. Uh, so we, we come together and we discuss issues. You can imagine what those issues are. You know, how are we developing, you know, the force, quality of life issues? How do we how do we see how we recruit, retain? What is the access we have to 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 society in order to ensure that one, we're getting the very best from society that we that, that there is a draw from? Two, how can we incentivize that and continue to engage the need for service and how how it really protects our nat our nation's defense and our citizens? We have those types of conversations, very high level stuff. We talk a lot about recently, you know, COVID actions. Uniquely, all the services, you know, it's hard for all the services to agree on anything. Most of the COVID things, as far as action items, everyone has got to has got to be on the same sheet of music with. And I think we've empowered a little bit of the, the service chiefs to do that because we, we can socialize some of those topics. Because quite frankly, the joint force operates jointly, and you can't have different policies sometimes on how you operate together. That's been one of the greatest benefits of us being able to engage together, to be able to socialize some of those, not just COVID issues, but interoperabilities. Sergeant Major, this this may fit under not your lane, um, but if we could pull up to 30,000 foot and talk about the program of record, a lot of conversation about a 355-ship Navy. I saw a thing that uh, our good friend David Larder wrote at Defense News um, this morning about a 500-plus ship Navy that's uh, sort of starting to be discussed. 
Um, it has a lot of unmanned elements. They're necking down to nine aircraft carriers. I've heard criticism from Marine circles about the focus on amphibious ships. And uh, what I see in terms of lethality uh, is we've never been better. You know, the America class, V-22s, F-35Bs. So our, our, as Commandant Berger has pivoted to, let's just call it the traditional core mission, is the office, uh, the Commandant, the Headquarters Marine Corps, satisfied with where we're trending in terms of the program of record, or is, is there more work to be done there? I think the Commandant's on the record, as well as probably the Secretary and the Chief of Naval Operations, on what their thoughts are about the size of the fleet. For the Marine Corps' perspective on that, let's state the problem. If you're going to have a highly enabled force capable of naval expeditionary operations in a distributed manner, but using the first island chain as an example, where you have to be able to maneuver in, through, by, with that sort of terrain, maintain a freedom of movement, move on a moment's notice, in order to place the adversary in a compromise of where you're at and how you're going to be able to, to engage them, you can begin to see a need maybe to have a conversation about numbers of ships. I would offer a different perspective on that. It's types of amphibs. You know, commandants on the record, I believe the CNO is as well, talking about various forms of connectors and what those connectors would look like. It's great to have a, a, a big deck amphib or an LPD but that's one ship. How do you get from ship to shore? Can you simply move from one environment to the next by moving and re-embarking on an LPD and moving to the next place when you still have to have a presence in the former? How do you maneuver through that space? Conversations about the light amphibious warship. That's that. I believe that's open source. What does that mean? What can you do with that sort of vessel? Really, it comes down to what can you afford? So now we're back to budget, right? Bigger, better, does all things is also uh, bigger budgeting. What about automation? How does automation play into that? You know, a large warship requires people. People are also a finite resource. How much does automation cost? And can you utilize automation as part of the, the, the size of the fleet? Unmanned or, a, or, or AI-induced or operated supply ships subsurface surface those things are a whole different way to conceptualize the size of the fleet because sometimes the size of the fleet also depends on, on the number of personnel what's the what's the end strength of the navy's personnel the end strength of the marine corps personnel so now we, we have a combination of all those things that come together that really impact size of the fleet i think the operating environment really directs us to think differently oh and by the way we're focused on the pacific but there's this other entire you know two-thirds of the globe the Navy and the Marine Corps have to maintain a presence against the same adversary in many cases and other adversaries as well. I won't, I won't make any comment on the size or number of, of you know, vessels in, in the fleet. But I think there's a great conversation to be had about, is it right? What are those, what are those things? How many of them do you need to have? And what would we use them for? I think that's part of the conversation in a distributed naval expeditionary force sort of competitive environment, persistence sort of an environment like we're in right now. Great non-answer, wasn't it? No, that was yeah, that was good. So uh, I, I'll just mention I worked on the V-22 program. It was my first job out of the Navy 
PMA 275 at NAVAIR from 02 to 05. The program manager was Dan Schultz, Colonel Dan Schultz, now the CEO of Sikorsky, you may know, a great Marine. Um, And so we were able to field that airplane. Later, I was the editor of military.com. I embedded with our forces in 2010 and was able to fly the V-22 out of Bastion with VMM-263 all around Helmand. And it was beautiful to watch the airplane being used as we suggested it would be when we were testifying or telling budgeteers or anybody else that wanted to know what's going on with the V-22. Because we forget maybe how controversial and how at risk that platform was in those days from return to flight to milestone three. So it was beautiful to watch, you know, you land in some remote fob or some remote combat outpost on a gravel landing pad, have people walk aboard and just immediately fall asleep as if they were getting on an H-53 or an H-46. You know, it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm on a V-22, I'm really scared. You know, so for me, that was sort of the validation that this platform was now, you know, accepted fleet-wide. So um, is that what you're seeing from the young Marines? They, they just sort of, you know, a V-22 is the asset of choice, uh, or is there still some perception among grunts that this airplane has a, a controversial history? Well, let me speak of personal experience. I've got, I've got a number of flights on V-22s in combat. I'm not getting to the, to the details of it. I have been in the back of an MV-22 when it's, when it's probably at its highest end of maneuverability in its envelope as a result of enemy fire. And I, I'm here today, and I'll tell you, it's a pretty amazing aircraft. Um, I can't, it's, it's amazing what something can do when you're actually getting shot at in the pilots that are, that are as highly trained as, as any, I would say better than anybody on the face of this earth, actually maneuver that aircraft. It, it's, it's one thing to kind of just take off from an Amphib and kind of land in an LZ, you know, and everything. So it's really cool. Like the, the engines move up and down, and it kind of goes fast, and it's kind of really cool. But when it does what it's supposed to do in the most extreme of environments, it is an impressive aircraft. It is impressive. So I know when you first got to see, you know, we linked up on the phone. I knew you were probably familiar with Marine Corps Association, the Marine Corps Foundation. Wasn't sure how much you knew of the Naval Institute, so it kind of gave you some insight. And I send you emails every now and then. Um, but I know Marines are in the space. They're writing. We just uh, were in the process of grading the inputs for the Marine Corps essay contest. Uh, and FYI, we had 19 out of 75 were written by enlisted authors from the Marines. So that was kind of, that's pretty significant to me. And that's 25%. And I just read a blog piece by Lance Corporal on the USNI blog titled, Dear Mom, Thank You for Laughing. It was a pretty interesting uh, piece. But what are your thoughts on the importance of Marines using tools and, and forms like the Naval Institute and tools of writing to help address quality of work and life issues? So not, not to plug any other organization, but quite frankly, I think the more that, that Marines write, no matter who they're submitting that to, you know, obviously the 25% of the, of the writing that you're receiving from the Marine Corps is coming from Mr. Force, this is a good thing. Why is it important to write? One, if, you, if you're going to write something and it's intelligent, uh, then it's been resourced and cited. Therefore, you're learning. You're developing cognitively as an individual. If one, you have the courage to put pen to paper, or in this case, finger to key, uh, and go through making a sound, justifiable argument, and having a, having a, producing some sort of recommendation out of it, or, or a thought, or, or generating some idea of how to shape a doctrine or a tactic. I'm sure what you what you receive crosses the spectrum from uh, a different boot, a shoelace, up to a better way to fight the space force. I'm sure the broad spectrum 
is 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 there and all of it's valuable. What it tells me is is that I'll go back to the original question you asked or one of the questions you asked earlier. Well, you know, what's what's some of the things you're concerned about? What I'm not concerned about is the intellect of service members that are coming in today, they're old, new, uh, or in the middle of their careers because it's a thinking force. I might add, and the Commandant actually spoke last night at the Ground uh, Awards dinner hosted by Marine Corps Association and Foundation. But the point of this is he talked about something that 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 is really part of what your question you just asked. It's about what's the importance of writing and being engaged. We released Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 7 uh, in the middle of the summer on learning. And what we learned is through that publication, if you, if you get a chance to read it, and I would, I would advise anybody listening to get a hold of the copy of it, what you'll hear is a term known as intellectual edge. And what's intellectual edge? Intellectual edge is the combination between education and training. What is training? Training is, is the reps and sets, right? It's fighting for the known. It's, it's training for the known. It's being able to engage, okay, if I do enough of X, when I see a scenario or situation like it, I will have an immediate reaction. Going to the rifle range, conducting patrols, doing standard flight checks on an aircraft, a submarine or a ship just cutting grid squares is doing training. Then there's education. Education is how you develop a thought cognitively about how, okay, let me envision the future. Let me think through the unknown. A combination of those things, intellectual edge, that has been our advantage against adversaries forever in the United, history of the United States of America. We have never been the numerically superior force. Think about that for a moment. In any war of attrition, we are always on the, on the smaller end of that conversation. World War II, Revolutionary War, we can debate uh, a war against the former Soviet Union. In wars of attrition, we never compete by number. Where we compete is, is in our intellectual edge. It's the ability of the lowest level service members to make tactical, operational, and arguably steal a phrase from a former commandant, General Krulak, the strategic corporal. There's, a, there's something to be said there about decisions made by our lowest level leadership in the Marine Corps, a, not, a junior non-commissioned officer making a decision that is strategic in impact. That is our advantage on any modern battlefield or, or former battlefield is the intellectual edge. So what's what what's a good way to, to justify and show that that actually is, is real? The writing you just talked about. Think of some of the concepts. Think of some of the conversations that, that, that these enlisted Marines I'm sure sailors are a good portion of the Navy submissions as well. Yeah. Think about what these members are talking about. Where do they come up with these ideas? It's not off the cuff. It's research. It's thought. And look, look at some of the things you can take from those ranks. And if you put them into practice, doctrinally, operationally, development-wise, the innovation there, that's what carries our force into the future and being able to maintain our edge over any adversary. Yeah, I love that. I think uh, you've captured that in a way I've never heard it captured before, right? The, when you put it against numbers of force compared to um, our adversaries, you know, I've always heard, hey, our intellectual advantage and this and that, but the way I love the way you just package that. I've never heard that before. All right. So any last points you want to make, highlight, points of emphasis? I think it's important to, to talk about force design one last time. Because most of most service members, whether no matter what services is, none of us have experienced really a significant transformational sort of forward direction for our service in a long time. For the Marine Corps, it's mid 80s. 
I'd like to remind everybody that that transformation for the Marine Corps in the mid eighties that, that, that changed names of things, doctrinal, you know, we used to be a Marine amphibious unit, a Marine amphibious brigade, a Marine amphibious force focused hundred percent on amphibious operations. A commandant had the capability to envision, right? What the future operating environment would be and change it simply to Marine expeditionary unit, Marine expeditionary brigade. You can imagine what it, the commandant went through when he changed, got rid of the word amphibious, right? Oh my gosh, the Marine Corps is going backwards. And look what's happened as a result of that. We don't know what the next 10 years of the Marine Corps is going to look like. We don't know what the next 10 years for our nation is going to look like. We don't know how we're going to engage, where we're going to engage. But I will tell you, using this as an example of force design and where it's shaping the Marine Corps for the future has to be, we have to be resolute in the fact that how we did force design previously, 35, 40 years ago, and how it carried us through the 1990s in a truly expeditionary environment, which was unknown at the time of the change, carried us into being able to operate jointly across all the services. I mentioned military operations other than war, low intensity conflict, things you've never heard of before, and how we actually operated when we were actually called upon to play in the Super Bowl. Think about that. We did we did summer practice, right, for like 10, 15 years, and then we played in the Super Bowl. And, and, and look, look what happened. We're successful. So I think as we continue to talk about force design, what we are talking about today, we know we're fools to think that in 10 years, that's exactly what the Marine Corps is going to look like. What we know is, is we'll learn along that way. But what is, what is fact is we cannot be successful in 2030 and beyond with the Marine Corps that we have today and how we've operated the last 15 to 20 years. Those two things do not work in a, in a peer environment. We just don't. So last thing I would say is, and it's encouraging. The encouragement is, is that Marines that are serving today get to have the same exact opportunities that we did. Master Chief, you and I entered the Navy and the Marine Corps at a time when there was massive change in both services. And we got to live through that change. And we're actually the benefactors of it. We're, we are the ones that carried those legacies on. So exciting for anyone entering the Marine Corps. And I'll throw the Navy in here because we are, we are a combined naval force. It's exciting right now where the Marine Corps and the Navy are going in particular, and how we see the future operating environment, how our services are transforming themselves to be successful in that environment. Very encouraging. So hang on. Hang on, shipmates. Hang on, Marines. It's going to be a good ride. Looking forward to it. Absolutely an exciting time and a privilege to lead. Absolutely impressed with you today. And thanks for your insights. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your service. Uh, our guest again, 19th Sergeant Major Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Troy Black. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. So that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.